basketball fans in here will know the feeling that comes when, um, when your team is down by one or two points, you only got a few seconds left on the clock, and your team has possession of the ball. There's only, one t- only time for, for one play, and if your team scores, you win. If you miss, there's no other, no other options left on the table. There's, there's no other time to run another play. This, this is it. The whole game is culminating in this moment here. The shot must be, must be made. And so if you've been in that situation, whether just as a fan watching the game or if you've been in that situation as a, a player actually playing the game, then you, then you know that, that feeling, that, that tension in that moment when that, that inbound pass comes and the, the player gets the ball and, and takes that final shot. So everyone in that moment is holding their breath some are, are, are clutching their chest, right? Time, time feels in that moment as, as if it's going in slow motion, as you, you're just watching that ball sail through the air towards the basket, and, and you're watching that clock just tick down to zero. Now, in that game, every, every shot leading up to that moment is, is good if it goes in. You, you want every shot to go in, but this, this moment right here, this shot must go in. It must go in. Like, victory is dependent on that shot. Today is the first day of Advent. It's the first day of Advent. The word Advent means, means coming. It means arrival. See, Advent is a, is a season within the Christian calendar where we, where we live with this expectation and this waiting for the arrival of God into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. Even these candles kind of symbolize the, the light getting brighter and brighter as we move closer and closer to Christmas Day when that final candle is lit, which represents Christ. The light is, is getting brighter. So this, this is anticipation, this eagerness uh, for the day to come where Jesus is with us and dwelling with us. Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Advent is a season which should remind us then of the necessity of Christ's birth. This this realization that Christ must come to this earth to save us from our sins. Because without the arrival of Jesus, humanity has zero hope. There's no other play. Our victory, our eternal life, our Peace, our salvation is completely and totally dependent upon the arrival of Jesus into this world. There is no other that we can look to in order to find the, the rest that our souls are, are hungry for. Christ must come. And so over the next four Sundays, over the next four Sundays, we're, we're taking a break from Judges. As much as I love Judges, probably not the best theme leading into Christmas, but over the next four Sundays, as we, as we move toward Christmas Day, the day when we celebrate the arrival of God being made flesh to dwell among us, we're going to remind ourselves each week of the necessity of Christ's birth. But also, at the same time, we're going to be looking to the hope that we have in a God who keeps his promises and the hope of a God, the eager anticipation of, 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 a, of a Savior who is returning for his church, for his bride. Today, today we're looking at humanity's need. Humanity's need, which necessitates the arrival or the coming of a Savior. This, this theme this morning that Christ must come. Next week, we're going to look at the, the promise 
of God, that, that Christ will come to this earth. In the third week, we're going to rejoice because we're going to look and see that Christ has come to this earth. And then on the final week, on Christmas Eve morning, we're going to look forward to the glorious hope that just as Christ has come to this earth, we know and live in this eager anticipation that Christ is coming again. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to focus on four key words, must, will, has, is. Today, we're, we're looking at our longing, our need. We're keying in on, on the key word must, that we long for peace and rest for our souls. We long for a hope that's, that's more than just wishful thinking, that we need rest. We need salvation. We need to be rescued. We need a Savior. Why? Because of sin. Because we are broken and incredibly flawed people and because we can't fix ourselves no matter how hard we try to fix ourselves and boy do we try hard at that but we can't fix it we can't fix the problem so how how can we actually find peace then for our souls when when our own sin and even the sin of a broken creation robs us of the life and the fellowship that we want with God that we that we're designed to have with God and that everything that I do that I attempt to, to, to fix these problems within me fails every single time. Your hope, our hope, my hope, as we'll see today and as it becomes clear in the, in the weeks ahead, is not in ourselves. It's, it's not in you. It's not in me. It's not in this world. Our hope is in a promised Savior who has entered into this world to crush the head of the enemy. Our hope and eternal life is in a God who covers our shame. Our hope is in a God who who removes our guilt, who frees us from sin's condemnation, and who lavishes his grace upon us. That's why we need to be still and behold that. Behold that reality. Many of us believe and hold to that truth, that reality, that hope that's found in Christ. Others don't have not yet entered into that hope, that peace, that rest that comes from Christ. And so I love for those of you that that that's where you are. I love this quote by John Piper as he thinks upon even just the Advent season. He says, if there's a, a longing in your heart this Advent for something that the world has not been able to satisfy, might not this longing be God's Christmas gift preparing you to see Christ as consolation and as redemption and to receive him for who he really is. My sermon this morning rests really just on one proposition, and that is because sin had made us hopelessly lost, enslaved, and cut off from God, it was necessary that Christ must come to restore our tattered and broken relationship with him and to rescue humanity from the grip of the enemy. We've heard the text read for us this morning from Genesis 3. Genesis 3, if you have a church background, it's familiar. We reference it here quite often, actually. Genesis 3 is, again, like this familiar text to us. If you've grown up in the church, it outlines and it's detailing the fall of humanity. It's revealing how sin entered into God's good world and how sin has corrupted everything that was designed to be good and life-giving. See, up to, up to this point in the narrative in the, in the book of Genesis, everything was good in Genesis 1 and 2. There was harmony. 
There's harmony between God and, and between God and mankind. There, there's harmony between mankind them, themselves. There was no lying. I mean, think of, think of what this life was like before the fall. There was no lying, no deception. There's no abuse. There's no stress. There's nothing to be stressed about. There's no worry. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There's no shame. There was no guilt. There's nothing. None of that existed. There was harmony between all of us. There was even harmony between, between mankind and even the rest of creation. It was life as it was designed to be with God ruling over, over all and man and woman in the midst of this garden living with the Creator in His presence. But this good, it sure didn't last long. We get two chapters, two chapters before it unravels. At the beginning of Genesis 3, the verses that weren't read uh, were, were that Satan enters into this good world. He, he tempts and deceives and causes Adam and Eve to, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God himself, to believe. There's, no, there's something out there that's better than God. There's something out there in the world to pursue rather than God himself, to pursue creation rather than the creator, something that was better in the world to make ultimate in their lives rather than God himself. And since that moment, that moment when Adam and Eve rebelled and rejected the goodness of God, the nature of God, the person of God, all of humanity has done likewise. That we are now born, we're born now with the sinful nature whose default mode, your default mode is to rebel. Your default mode is to reject God, to run from God, not run to Him. Our default mode, your default mode, is to worship the creation rather than the Creator. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, um, just observe children. Just observe little children. Now, we talk about this uh, here from time to time, but uh, we, have you ever thought about this, that you don't have to teach a child how to do wrong. Like no good parent, unless you're like a mafia boss, has never sat down with their child and said, here's how to commit a crime. Here's how to do wrong. Right? So, so son, daughter, in, in life, as you get older, I'm going to ask you to do certain things. And, and no parent has ever gotten a whiteboard out and said, now here's your options. Here's your options. When a request comes in from the, someone in authority over you, you can either write on the board, ignore, and here's what ignore means, and no kid is writing this down, oh, ignore. Uh, no, you could also just completely disobey and do something else instead. You could tell me no, right? Like, here are the options. And again, no kid is writing this down, and like, I got to meditate on this and really dwell on this and think through this. Like, no parents ever had to do that with, with, uh, with a child. Uh, I've shared this story before. I think I shared it with uh, my community group even this past uh, Wednesday. Uh, when, when I was a new parent, uh, when my son was, was really little, um, I, I remember thinking, when am I going to know, when am I going to know when I need to discipline? Uh, you know, so when's that transition from, you know, like as a baby, they're doing things I don't want them to do, but they're not necessarily doing it because they want to be rebellious, right? So my, my son wasn't waking up at three in the morning and be like, ah, yeah, dad really wants to sleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Right? Like, like, they're not doing that. I'm not disciplining a four-month-old for waking up in the middle of the night. That's how they're communicating, right? But I remember thinking as he was getting older, but when's, when are they moving from here to here? When am I going like, to see that this is actually a rebellious heart? And I remember thinking, like, man, am I going to be confused about this? And then one day it was like, oh, right there. Like, it was, it was just clear as day. Like, that was 
rebellion right there. Okay, come on. You've crossed the line. Let's, let's walk through this now. Like it, I never sat him down and said, here's what you do. It, it just came, I mean, just instinctually to him, just as it's instinctual within us. In fact, what do parents spend the majority of the 18 years that typically the, the kids in their home? Teaching them how to do right. And that's where you got to get the whiteboard out. And that's where they got to take notes because they, they do need to think on that. They need to meditate on that because that doesn't come naturally. The, our natural response, even as we grow older, it's not that adults are sinless and we never struggle with that. Hopefully by God's grace we mature more. But, but your default reaction oftentimes, just as mine is, is when something happens, I want to respond sinfully, and I, just, and I have to work, and I've got to discipline myself to actually respond in, in accordance with what Scripture calls me to, which leads me into life. This is our default mode. It's how we're made. We're born with a sinful nature. And our, and our sin has brought upon us and all of creation these dire consequences and has left us desperately trying to find a way to fix what's wrong. The problem is that nothing that we do works, but it doesn't stop us still from, from attempting to find new way after new way to fix what is so broken within us. And so I want to give us from our text this morning three reasons why Christ must Come to this earth. With all of that being true, why must he come? Why is it necessary? Was it necessary that he come, that he be sent? So reason number one, Christ must come because no amount of human effort will cover our shame and remove our guilt. Christ must come because no amount of human effort will cover our shame and remove our guilt. Look at the text. In verse 6, we, we see what, what lured Eve to disobey God. She, she looked at the tree and she was, that she was commanded not to eat of it. And, and, and the reason for, for the tree even being there in the first place was, was not because it in and of itself was, was evil. It was, it was a part of creation. But God places it there with the command not to eat because he wanted Adam and Eve, he wanted them to trust him. Trust that I'm good. Trust that I'm ultimate. Trust that there is nothing else out there in this world that's better than me. That there's nothing else in all of creation that will satisfy you like I will satisfy you. Trust me. And, and when you recognize that that was even the reason for, for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being placed in that garden, and, and then the reason to, to, to leave it alone, then verse 6 begins to make a little bit more sense when you start to see the language that's used. When she's being tempted, she looks at the tree in verse 6 and, and saw that it was good. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. She was desiring to be wise. Right? She was believing this, this lie that was placed before her that God was not her ultimate source of joy. That, that God is not the ultimate good, the ultimate being in all of the universe. She believed the lie that God was withholding something good from her that's better than him. And that by eating of this tree, that, that, that she would find something and would give, that would give more meaning and more joy to her heart than God would. So she eats. She eats. She rebels. Adam, who passively is standing by watching all of this take place, believes the lie as well. And he eats in verse 7, we see immediately what takes place at the moment of their rebellion. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, for the first time in human history, the feeling of shame, the feeling of guilt is felt. They disobey God, and immediately 
you can almost see them saying to themselves just in how they react, what have we just done? What have we just done? We shouldn't have done that. I, I feel horrible. There, there's all of a sudden this feeling of shame. What is this? I've never felt this before. There's this weight on me that wasn't there before. What is this? I need to cover. I need to fix this. You see them working and scrambling, even just in their response to, to this unraveling, to their rejection, them now being broken. Even as they looked at one another as husband and as wife, they felt all of a sudden this vulnerability and embarrassment just in each other's presence that they need to hide even now from one another. And so their response to, to shame and guilt and fear, to sin, all these feelings they're experiencing for the first time, they responded by trying to cover themselves on their own. They tried to fix the problem. They tried to reverse whatever had just happened. They grabbed whatever they could find. In this instance, they grabbed fig leaves. They sewed them together. They covered their nakedness because all of a sudden they felt exposed, even even though it was just the two of them. But now they have to even hide from one another. You see the unraveling taking place. What a gut-wrenching moment this is in human history. Maybe, though, even they thought, after they sewed these loincloths together, covered themselves, they came out from, from, the, from the hiding of one another, maybe, maybe in that moment they thought, okay, maybe we're good. Maybe we got ourselves covered I've covered up to the best that I can what was making me feel vulnerable and ashamed. Maybe they were beginning to start believing this other lie that they've got this figured out. They fixed it. Problem solved. But verse 8 reveals the problem is not solved. It reveals a larger problem. And verse 8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were maybe able to hide to some degree their shame and guilt well enough from one another. But the, but the moment a holy God steps onto the scene, they scurry into the forest like cockroaches scurry when a light is turned on. See, we can hide our guilt and our shame from one another. We can pretend. We can perform in such a way that, that gives off an impression that we're good, that we've got our lives under control, but we can't hide our guilt and our shame from a holy God. See, the glory of God's holiness in this moment exposes them and exposes us for who we really are, to which Adam and Eve's response to the holiness of God, the presence of God, was to run, run and hide. See, there is no amount of human effort which is sufficient enough to erase to remove the level of guilt and shame that we have. It's just like, again, using an analogy of a little child when, when they're growing and, and eating, and you, usually when you put them in the, the high chair, right, you, you take all their clothes off, basically, except for the diaper, because it's going to be a mess, right? Food's going to be uh, all over the floor. It's going to be all over the tray. It's going to be all over them. Uh, it, it's going to be just a disaster. But as they get older, you want to teach them, here's how to clean, right? So you, you hand them a rag, and you start trying to teach them how to clean up their mess. And then we all know as parents, right, if you've been in that situation, they're not really cleaning themselves. They're more smearing. Right? There's a difference between cleaning and smearing, and they're smearing. Now, they're, they're trying their best, but that's, what, that's basically the best that they can do. Well, that's similar to what we try to do when we try to clean up our mess. We, we're just smearing it all over, and, 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 and I've used that analogy before, and, and I've said this, that that analogy even falls short of what we're trying to even express here, because in the analogy, we're assuming that at least a clean rag is given to a child, not a soiled rag. 
But see, we as sinful human beings don't even have a clean rag to begin with. We have nothing clean within ourselves to even try and erase the mess. All we have is is sinful, soiled rags that we try to clean up our mess, and it's not going to do the job. Might do as best as we think we can, but again, as soon as a holy God steps onto the scene, we're exposed. We, we become like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he, he says, woe is me, right? He's a, he gets a vision of the throne room of heaven. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Or like the apostle John in, in Revelation, he sees the, the, the risen and, and glorious Jesus Christ and he falls to the ground like a dead man. There's no amount of human effort which is sufficient enough to erase the level of guilt and shame that we have. All of your sin, all of your guilt, all of the things which cause you to be ashamed may may be able to be hidden from others, but it's not hidden from God. Before him, your life is laid bare. You are exposed for who you truly are. That would be a terrifying reality if not for God's grace. It would be a terrifying reality if Christ had not come to this earth to fix what was wrong. We need a savior. Christ must come because you cannot cover your guilt and your shame. Reason number two is Christ must come because you're under the, the curse of sin. You're under the curse of sin. We feel, it, we feel sin's effects. The creation is under this, this, this weight of, of what sin has unraveled and what's the world in which we live. We're, we're, we're feeling that even amongst ourselves. Starting in verse 14, we see God's judgment and the effects of sin itself. In verse 14, God directs his judgment upon Satan who had, who had slithered into God's good world and tempted Adam and Eve to believe the lie. In verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, how, how Satan took on the form of a serpent, we don't know. Don't know, scripture's not, not clear on that. But what we do see in God's judgment upon Satan here is that, that it's different to some degree than the judgment that he's about to unleash on the rest of creation and, and on, on, on humanity. And the difference is that the judgment that's being placed on Satan here is eternal. It's a judgment that's, that's final. The, the snake, it says in verse 14, is cursed above all livestock denoting this idea of finality of judgment, that there's no reversing of that. Not only is the snake itself cursed, made to slither on its belly eating dust, which was a a symbol of humiliation. As one author stated, the the snake attempted to elevate himself above God, and so God caused it to, to go upon its belly. But the curse upon Satan, specifically even seen in verse 15, is also seen as final and as, e- as eternal. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You see the finality of judgment. A bruised heel is not as bad as a bruised head, a crushed head. That's final. It's here in verse 15 that we see the first gospel proclamation. And the means by which a Messiah, which is pointing to Jesus, the Christ, how he will save and redeem and how Satan will be defeated. And the defeat of Satan is, like I said, certain. It is final. It is eternal. 
Though there's tension, uh, God talks about here in verse 15, tension and conflict between the the offspring of of Eve and the offspring of of Satan, ultimately this text is pointing to the victory of Christ. It's not a a tension in the sense of I wonder who's going to win. It's just this ongoing tension that we feel. We feel even as believers in Christ, though we know victory is certain, though we know Christ is overcome, though though we hope and believe and know that he is returning, we still live in this tension between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And, and so we, we understand that, that there's tension, going to be conflict between, between uh, Eve, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of Satan. Like I said, it's pointing to ultimately Christ's victory on the cross over the power of sin and over the power of death. Though Jesus' heel was bruised, verse 15 would talk about, it was bruised when he hung on the cross, meaning that Jesus suffered in this life. But the final blow came through his resurrection. When upon leaving the tomb, the head of the serpent was crushed. No longer, because of Christ's death and resurrection, no longer does sin have the final say. No longer does death have the final say. No longer does sin have power over those who are in Christ. No longer is death the great enemy of the church. No longer are we under sin's condemnation. That's a crushed head. That's what the death and resurrection brought about. Through faith in Christ, we're free. Through faith in Christ, we're forgiven. Through faith in Christ, we have new new life. Through faith in Christ, listen to this, we even participate in the crushing of Satan's head. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's through Christ alone that we finally and eternally experience the true lasting peace that our hearts and our souls long for. And that there's coming a day when when just as Jesus has come to this earth to deliver us from the dominion and the grip of sin, from the enslavement and condemnation of sin, that he's coming back. He's returning to remove Maybe I'd say it like this, all all traces of sin's effects, all traces of death's effects, where he will reign and he will rule forever. But until that day, until that day, we're still experiencing the effects of the curse. Though through repentance and faith, like I said, we're no longer under sin's condemnation because through repentance and faith, we are no longer under sin's control and dominion. We still feel its effects in in this world and in our life. In verse 16, God tells Eve that those things in her life which were meant for blessing will now be experienced painfully. There's a mixture even in this of, of, of blessing and suffering. God's giving of children into this world is, is a gift. It's a blessing of God. But, but the process is painful. Marriage is meant to be a, a blessing given to us by, by a good God, but now, but now there's tension in the home. Two sinners, when I do premarital counseling, we talk about conflict all the time because I, I say, listen, there's going to be two sinners under one roof. And I usually say it's going to be like a cage match sometimes, right? Two sinners under one roof is going to bring about hardship from time to time, conflict from time to time, tension from time to time. It's, ble- it's a blessing. Marriage is a blessing, but it's difficult. We feel that. We feel that tension 
in our world today. In verse 17, to Adam, he directs this. He says, the things which were meant to bring him joy and meaning in his life are are now going to war against him. Men are designed to uh, create and and to, to build and to lead and to work and to cultivate and, and we still have that, that God-given responsibility, but because of now sin, of, of, of sin's unraveling, creation is now going to produce, as it said, thorns and thistles, meaning work is not going to be easy. And all those who have jobs said amen, right? We, we feel that. We feel that work is not easy. We look forward to breaks, vacations. We look forward to uh, Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, a time where we're just kind of away from that for a bit. Why? Because it's difficult. Survival will come through pain and sweat and tears. In fact, in verse 19, we see that the only release from this curse of pain and suffering before the return of Jesus is death itself, physical death itself. That man will return to dust, God says, for out of it you were taken. Christ must come because we're under the curse of sin. And only through repentance and faith in Jesus are we set free from sin's condemnation, its power. But, but Christ also, we would say, must come again. He must return because only through the return of Jesus will the curse finally and fully be eradicated. We are dependent upon him and him alone. This Christmas season, Advent season, reminds us of that. Lastly, lastly, Christ must come because sin has cut you off from God. Christ must come because sin has cut you off from God. In the final verses of chapter 3, we see that not only has man's sin placed them in all of creation under under this curse and judgment of God, but we see at the end of chapter 3 that it separated them from God's presence. In verses 22 through 24, it said, "Then Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, Eden, Eden was a, a place where God dwelt with man. Life is as it was intended to be. We see from the very beginning that God's design for humanity was to be in his presence. And when we are outside of his presence, we're living outside of our design. Now, we may be functioning, but we're not functioning as we're designed to function. Um, Think of it this way. I think every teenager should, at some point in their teenage life, have a junker as a car. At some point, they need to have a car that you're like, man, I hope this gets me from here to there, right? I think it it builds character, creative problem-solving, dependence on the Lord. Like, I I just think it's important that they have that in their life. And and a lot of people say, um, you know, we want to get a car that gets us from point A to point B. I say I always want a car that gets me from point B back to point A, right? (laughs) But I think everybody, everybody at some point in their life should have some type of car that just 
it just, it's, it's just a piece of junk, right? Um, one, one of the early cars I had uh, when I was in high school, anytime you went over 50 miles an hour, uh, the check engine light would start to come on, just flash at you. Um, never got checked out. It, I never, it never like blew up on me. I, just, I don't know if it was like my parents setting that, so I, went, I just never went over 50, 55, so I didn't know what the car was going to do. So it was just always a, well, let's hope we get there. Uh, and, and it was good. It was good for me. Now, here's my point with that. Like when we think of things like that, when we drive junkers, they may be getting us from point A to point B, and maybe, by God's grace, they get you from point B back to point A. So they might be, they're functioning, right? They're functioning, they're technically doing what a car is supposed to do, but if you've ever been behind a wheel and, and you're driving and it's just shaking and, and you're seeing some smoke come out, like, yeah, the car's moving, but man, it is not functioning as it was designed to function. I guarantee you they didn't roll that car off the assembly line. They're like, yep, good to go, right? So, so, so that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like, we, we as human beings, we're, we're functioning, but we're not functioning oftentimes as we've been designed to function. And, and so often we can, we can fall into this trap of deception. Like, well, I'm, we're living. We're functioning as human beings. Look at, what we, look at what we've created and built in this world. We have jobs. I pay my bills. We get to take vacations. We can look and say, we're doing okay. What do we need God for? <laughs> I'm doing okay. And this can deceive us into thinking that, that we have no need for him. But I, I would argue, I would argue that, that since Genesis 3, humanity, we don't fully grasp or understand what we're fully missing out on. That what life will be like in the presence of God freed from the curse and the weight of sin under the full reign and rule of a good God. We don't fully grasp what life will be like in his presence when we're freed from the effects of sin. We see him face to face. We can't fathom it because we've never experienced it fully. We only know what this life is like, and we've made it to the best of our ability, as comfortable as we can. I also believe there, there is a part of the human heart that remembers what life was like before the fall. And there's something deeply woven within the DNA of our, of our being that desperately wants to return. Ecclesiastes 3.11 would say that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That there's, there's something within us, deep within our core of our being, that, that longs for eternity and not just this idea of living forever, but I think this longing of we're, we're missing out on the full presence of God. That that's where I fit. That's where I fully function is in his presence. And I think the deepest wound that came from man's sin in that garden was that he was cut off. He was removed from God's presence in that garden. It, it wasn't that God had abandoned him, but no longer were they walking freely with him. No longer could they, could they experience the freedom and the joy that came from his presence. Rather, their inclination was to run anytime God was among them because of their shame and guilt. Yet, God's desire to dwell with his people never left. We see that throughout the remainder of Scripture. And from that point forward, we see the beauty of the, the plan of redemption completely uh, unrolled. And it was in Christ, it was in Christ that this plan of redemption was fully realized. In no way could man come to God. There's no way we could through our own human effort, go back to God, right? It's where we belong in the presence. We cannot get there. So what is, what is Christmas? God coming to us. God coming to us. 
what love, what beauty, what hope there is in Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we can now enter back into the presence of God, and then we long for the day when we will see him face to face. This is the glory of the incarnation. This is the the beauty of Christmas. As I conclude here this morning, Christ must come because there's nothing we can do to cover our shame. Christ must come because we're under the curse of sin. Christ must come because only through him can we enter back into the presence of God as we were designed to live. Though Genesis 3 outlines the the fall of humanity, it's also sprinkled throughout with God's grace. We saw in verse 15 the the proclamation of the gospel. The Messiah will come. He will crush the head of the enemy. But we also see tucked away in this story a picture of what this promised Messiah will bring about for us. In verse 21, it says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember back to when they felt shame and guilt, what did they do? They tried to fix their problems. They tried to cover themselves, their shame and their guilt. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. What's God do here in verse 21? He covers them. He covers them. What they did was insufficient. It wouldn't work. It would not satisfy. He covered them. But notice how he covered them. It was through sacrifice, wasn't it? Blood was shed to cover their guilt. What a picture that is of the suffering of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no covering. In the midst of creation unraveling, we see grace. We see forgiveness. We see Jesus. It's Christ who has loved us so immensely that he willingly laid down his life, took upon himself our shame, our guilt, And and what what has he accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, through faith in him? He's clothed us in his righteousness. This is the glory of Christ. This is the beauty of Advent. Let's be still and behold him. Let's pray.